Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is the best science on the radio that you'll hear for the next half hour. <laughs> I, I think I said it a few times. I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, um, I think you're right. Yeah. I think we certainly have a jam-packed half an hour for you. We, it's so jam-packed, I tell you what. And we're going to start off, I have, my name is Chris, by the way, I have some exciting news about the kilogram. Yeah, I know, it's pretty <laughs> exciting. It's, it's heavy stuff. Uh, <laughs> Okay, um, there's actually news broken about the kilogram. There is kilogram news. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's actually well, it's it's been it's been reported fairly widely reported. It's kind of not actually breaking news. It's kind of like don't don't say that. It's come kind on, of, you don't want no, everyone to tune out. There's it's like news to come. It's like there is change afoot. The what, kilogram some- <laughs> is going to change, and there's like news stories saying hold the presses. The kilogram sometime in the next couple of years will change, and everyone's going. That's incredible. So well, I mean, but okay, all right. I'm 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 looking forward to hearing about this because I want to know what it actually means in practice. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, so, yeah, so that's going to be very how interesting. How is the kilogram going to affect my life? Yeah, how is the kilogram changing going to affect my life? That okay, is my question good. that you will answer, won't you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, what, what are you going to well, okay, well, What do you got? Okay, okay. I, I don't have any news about the kilogram, but I do have some very exciting news about a new type of glue, a new type of medical glue that has just been discovered. It is better than any glue that we know. But the really amazing thing about this glue is that where is, is where it comes from. What is your most uh, hated garden variety of mollusk, Chris? Ah, oh, the um, the the parasitic land oyster. <laughs> Not the slug. Oh, the slug! Yeah, they're pretty horrible. They're pretty bad, aren't they? Yeah, they're they? disgusting to step yes. on. Yes. Well, um, there are some nice slugs out there. Are there? Yeah. Hats I off don't to know. the banana slug. Anyway, <laughs> apart from the banana slug, I'd really hate slugs. But it's slugs that have been the inspiration for this new glue. And yeah, it's very amazing. I have a pretty awesome story about that. Wow! So we have kilogram news and slug news. Yeah, and Stu also this is so excited. <laughs> Stu has a story for us as well this week. He's going to be talking about the controversy of testing for eligibility to compete in women's sport events. That almost sounds like a real story. Yeah, it does sound like a real story, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting, you know, with um, Olympics and how things yeah, have changed yeah. over, over time. So, yeah, three fantastic stories or at <laughs> okay. least um, one amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for this excitement. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I am talking about the current plans to redefine the kilogram. Now, redefine the kilogram. Well, to better what's wrong def- with it? No, to better def- well, what's wrong with it is it's currently based on a lump of platinum iridium alloy that's kept in France, oh. and it is the last of the SI standard SI units to be defined by a lump of platinum somewhere, and oh. rather than you know some sort of physical quantity based on fundamental constants. So we're finally sorting out the kilogram. Okay. Okay. So what you're saying is for every other sort of data unit, there has been this change from something physical to something sort of 
like conceptual, I conceptual yeah. a number of atoms or something like that. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff. And this is like the last bastion. This is the last bastion. So look, I should explain what we're talking about here. Okay. The context. I'll give you some context. Sure. That, that'd be really good, yeah. Okay. It was established in 1954, the International System of Units, or Le Système International de Unités, <laughs> um, abbreviated SI. Yeah. Apologies to all our French listeners out there. Yeah. So look, the SI system of international units is a set of seven fundamental units from which every other physical unit can be derived. Every other physical unit? Well, you know, like you might find in physics kind of thing. I can't speak for biology, but... <laughs> okay, know. all right. Yep, yep, go yep. on. So it is, of course, based on the metric system. So we have the the basic units are the metre. Great. The kilogram. Yep, familiar. The, the second. Ah, yes. Yes. Mm. The ampere. The ampere. current. Ampere. Yeah, the ampere. Um, the Kelvin, which is... Temperature. The mole. Uh, <laughs> concentration of... Well, see, the amount of the chemical substance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the candela, which is for luminous intensity. Ah. Less less used. Yeah, right. The candela, like yeah. the can, like candescent, incandescent lights, candela. Something like that, yeah. Mm. So these are all pretty old units, as you can probably tell. They've gone through various stages of refinement and standardization. The meter, for instance, one of my favorites, uh, is up there. <laughs> it's everyone's favorite. It's in the top seven. I mean, yeah, it's very tangible. Yeah. So it was originally defined in 1793 as one ten millionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole on a meridian that runs through Paris. Wow. And I like that because it's a nice bit of trivia because it lets you really easily remember the circumference of the Earth. So basically the 10 million metres is like a quarter of the distance because from the north part of the equator. So four times that is 40 oh, is million this... metres. So yeah. in kilometres, that's 40,000 kilometres. Oh, that is excellent. So it's really easy to remember. Yeah. Well, and then you can get the diameter and the um, see it's all quite the, simple. All the, all the radius just by doing a little bit yeah. of... Of course, it is a bit inconvenient to measure that distance. Um, mm. So in 1889, they established a standard meter, what they called um, prototype meters, made of a platinum, platinum iridium alloy. And then you could have like copies of these distributed around the world. So everyone could have like a copy of the prototype meter. Prototype meter. Can yeah. I ask why they're using that particular element? Uh, just because it was strong and I know they liked it. I don't know. Oh, Okay. Don't really know. Mm. But it's better, though, if you don't have to rely on whatever element is, you know, a hunk of platinum. Yeah. So they tried to define it in terms of physical constants. And the current definition for the meter is that it is the distance traveled by light in a vacuum in one 299,792,478 of a second. What's up with that? Why? Well, because the speed of light in a vacuum is a universal constant. Yeah. So you define the meter in terms of that. And also then, as a bonus, you get the speed of light defined exactly as 299,792,478 meters per second. Again, easy to remember. But it does mean that the meter is then defined in terms of the second, which then kind of becomes the master unit for that purposes. So there was never, obviously, a platinum second kept in France. Mm-hmm. Hard to make a platinum second. Yeah. But everyone kind of knew what a second was anyway. You know, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But a day is not a set length. So a day can vary. So that's not a great way of doing it. For a while, they defined the second in terms of the year 1900. <laughs> Why that particular year? Um, it's just convenient. They were doing this around that time. I think it was in 1956 they did that, though. I don't know why that shows that. Um, the second was, yeah, a certain was... fraction of that year. And that wasn't a leap year, obviously? No. Uh, um, no, it wouldn't have been. No. 
But that was kind of, that's a bit inconvenient to carry around a platinum year as well. Um, so they, <laughs> it is currently defined by the most accurate measure we have, which is an atomic clock. And so a second is now 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. Which basically means it's defined in terms of an atomic clock, a certain number of ticks of an atomic clock. So easy. Um, I won't go through the others now, but the kilogram, though, has remained the last measure defined in terms of a lump of a physical thing kept in Paris. It's known as Le Grand K. It was made at the same time as the standard meter. It was originally called a grave, the kilogram was. That's a bit of trivia. Oh, a kilo, like a kilograve? It was just a grave. Oh. And a gram was a milligrave. Yeah, right. But, so, so why is the kilogram the standard unit and not the gram? Good question. It's just the way it's done. I don't know. I don't really know. I couldn't find an answer to that, a convenient mm. answer. So okay. there was a competing set of units before they established this. There was the CGS units, which was centimetre, gram, second. So the centimetre and the gram were kind of in the same thing together. And then yep. they want to use a metre and they put the kilogram with that because I guess they're similar size. Yeah, yeah. Conceptually. Now, the grave was actually based on something real. Like, just like the meter was based on the size of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, the grave was based on water. It was like one liter of water was equal to a kilogram, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. But that can be a bit too variable. So, uh, hence the use of the platinum lump of grand K. But apart from being a little embarrassing when everything else is so well defined, even the grand K hasn't been stable. Um, it's been well cared for. It's only used every 40 years or so, but it appears to have been losing weight because, well, no one knows entirely for certain. <laughs> and it's a little hard to tell because you can only really do it by comparing it to copies and they're all different. Yeah. So you kind of go, well, who's right? Yeah. Um, so you can just kind of throw up your hands and say, look, we need something better. And the plan is to use something called a kibble balance, also known as a watt balance. And what this does, it super accurately measures a weight by comparing it to the force through a current carrying wire that's put in the magnetic field. There's a whole lot of like mathematical jiggery-pokery you need to do to work out the weight from this. But one of the things it relies on is Planck's constant. So really, essentially, to be able to use this, we need a very accurate measure of Planck's constant. And this is where things are at now. There's a whole bunch of teams around the world who have been trying to measure Planck's constant, which is one of the fundamental constants of quantum mechanics. I should have said that. <laughs> should um, have said that. And they submitted their results to the General Conference of Weights and Measures and all this analysis. Mm-hmm. So you really need a super accurate measure of Planck's constant so then you can use this kibble balance to work out the, the mass. I think there's the best measurement of Planck's constant now is about 34 parts in a billion of accuracy, which is pretty accurate. But once they've decided they're happy with the value of Planck's constant, then you can say a kilogram is this much. Presumably at a certain, under certain conditions and everything as well. It's going to be well-defined, but you won't need that lump. So we're going to have to wait for more news on the kilogram. There is going to be more news when they've decided. When it. they've and decided I'll tell what, you what the actual is. definition is. <laughs> it's so exciting. Yeah, look, it is kind of good in that way. But yeah, eventually, um, Le Grand K, it will go the way of all the other old archaic units. You could even say it already has one foot in the grave. So, Chris, have you ever had the unfortunate experience of walking outside barefoot and stepping on a slug? Yeah, it's doesn't. It's not a good feeling. It is not a good it's feeling. It's bringing back memories. Yeah. It's like... Yeah. It is truly one of the most disgusting backyard experiences you can have. I mean, mm. if you have a dog and you step on dog poo, that's pretty gross that's as pretty well. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad, yeah. But stepping on a slug is like all sorts of squeamish gross. And you can't get it off, can you? There's like this glue stuff that just 
that that holds that slug to your foot and you just anyway oh, it's funny there was some use for that gooey <laughs> property of slugs it, it it happened to me as a child i stepped on a slug and haven't quite recovered ever since then i won't go into the backyard without shoes yeah and i won't go near a slug quick question yes what's worse a slug or a leech well i don't really like leeches either but I think it could be a slug. Because slugs are disgusting, I'll give you that, but they don't suck your blood. No, but leeches start off quite small and slugs start <laughs> fairly large. This, this is a good thing. Leeches are small until they engorge themselves on your own yeah, body fluids. I think so. Okay. Anyway, so as you can probably tell, I would never expect anything good to come from slugs. I truly dislike them quite a lot. And that's just the way that they feel on my foot. Right? And you like most creatures. And I do like, like most creatures. They also eat garden leaves. They leave little gross trails around my house. Mm. But it's only when I go to bed that they come out. So they're really mischievous, these slugs. Anyway, there is one little orange slug from Europe, which is... The latest medical muse for researchers at Harvard. And some very interesting research has been published in Science, the journal Science, about it this week. So these researchers have taken inspiration from this slug and developed a new type of glue based on the glue that this slug excretes when it's in danger. And this glue outperforms any type of medical adhesion that we currently have available to us at the moment, which is pretty amazing. So hang on, the slug is that a glue for defence? Yep, so the slug is called Arian subfuscus. It is a... Disgusting name. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Um, It's a rusty orange mollusk, as all slugs are. They're land mollusks. It's mostly found in gardens, under rocks, maybe leaving a gross trail as it slides its way to your pet food, your pet's food bowl. You know, they're always in the pet food bowls. Is it just me? It's just me. All right. <laughs> You're really leaving me out, hanging me out to dry there, Chris. But these these little Aryan subfuscus, they only live in the northern temperate regions around the world. So Phew. European temperate areas. Typically, these slugs just go and do their own thing until something tries to mess with them. So, for example, if a hungry predator tries to take a bite, the slug has this extremely sticky mucus that it uses as a defense. So the mucus oozes out of its back and then when the predator like goes to bite it, it, it gets its jaw like stuck with glue. And so it can't eat the slug anymore. That's its natural defense. It, it feels like the slug is already chomped by this point. <laughs> okay, so say, say the predator is, you know, isn't... Is licking it first. <laughs> Or the, maybe the predator isn't isn't that big. Maybe it's another okay. type of insect that's sort of like slowly trying to eat it or something. Okay, so this insect tries to bite the slug, yeah. gets stuck to it, yeah. and now the slug has a predatory insect stuck to it. <laughs> no, it, it takes a bite and, and then its its mouth gets glued shut or something. I don't know. Okay. Anyway... <laughs> Anyway, it's this sticky glue stuff that scientists have analysed and now have recreated it as a glue to be used in surgeries and on skin. So let's talk about this glue and why it's so much better than other glues. So currently, super glue is the best type of glue you can use for a surgery. Really? Yes. Because it sticks your fingers together. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> you are familiar with that. Yeah. It sounds like there's a story there. Anyway, maybe for another time. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of issues with super glue, not least of all, obviously, getting your fingers stuck together. But it can also be toxic for living cells, so it isn't the best thing to use in a surgery because it can be toxic. Mm-hmm. And also, it won't stick together things that are wet. So say you were doing surgery and there's a lot of blood everywhere, it's probably not great to have a glue that won't stick unless it's completely dry. Yeah, because the human body is still like 70% water, so yeah. good, luck, good luck with that. It is, it's, prob- it's, it's problematic. <laughs> Except for fingers, strangely enough. Anyway, when it does dry, this is super glue, it does so immediately and it dries into a solid that doesn't have a lot of give in it. Okay. Which, as you can imagine, isn't great on a moving body as it can't it doesn't have any elasticity yeah. to it. It can't yeah. move with I'm the, hearing a lot of negatives the here. body. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of negatives here. Yeah. So this slug glue that has been created is a little bit different. It's strong. It sets and glues together wet objects. It's also quite elastic, which is quite important. Now, the scientists looked closely at the glue that was made by the slug and noticed that although it is mostly water, this slug glue, 97% water, It has two different types of polymers that are sort of interwoven within this glue matrix. Uh, One polymer acts like this sort of like mesh net and provides a solid base for the glue. And then the second polymer forms these chains that stretch throughout the glue. So that helps keep the integrity of the glue when it's being stretched out. So they're really long chains. So if you stretch it out, it'll keep it together instead of like snapping apart, like you can imagine super glue to do. Mm. Yeah. So these two polymers form this double matrix of the glue and also mean that our slug glue is strong and flexible. So once this double matrix is in place, it obviously needs to become quite sticky as as well. You know, you can't just have something that's really flexible, but it isn't sticky. The glue needs to be sticky. So this is achieved by lining this matrix with these slightly positively charged proteins. Mm. And these proteins are attracted to the slightly negatively charged animal cells, like the tissue cells. And of course, the positive attracts the negative and you get some lovely covalent bonds forming between the tissue and the glue. Now, these proteins can really, once they're attracted, they can then really get into the nooks and the crannies of the tissue and bond to the tissue regardless of whether it has a liquid on it or not. It isn't dependent on whether there's there's a liquid there. The other benefit of the glue is that when it's compared to super glue, it takes a little bit longer to set. So this gives surgeons precious extra time to reposition the glue if they get it wrong the first time, which is always good. You get a little bit more time up your sleeve there. So once the researchers knew about the benefits of the slug glue, they were then able to go and create their own glue that is inspired and modelled from this slug glue. And that's exactly what they've done and what they've, what they've just published about. So they've pretty much created this new sticky tape that's super sticky, stretchy and can be used in the wet. And because the glue is bio-inspired, not sort of like just harvested from the slugs, you'll be happy to know that no slugs will be harmed in the future use and production of this glue. Are you, are you happy about that? Not entirely. (laughs) Anyway, the researchers have put this uh, slug-inspired glue to the test, demonstrating its mechanical stretching properties. 
and their slug-inspired glue stretches 14 times its own length before it debonds from the tissue. So if you imagine like a little strip of sticky tape um, stuck over a wound, you can stretch that out 14 times before it'll before the end will get sort of debonded from the tissue. And, yeah, so they think there's an application in skin wounds but also um, things like cardiopulmonary surgeries. The researchers did tests patching up a pig heart, so they were all very successful tests. They, oh, good. And this glue also works well when you're accommodating for a beating heart, not just a non-beating heart, which is good. It can even be used as an injectable solution to plug a hole. So you could inject it into a you know, hole in the heart or something like, like that. A yeah. Polyfiller kind of thing. Yeah, like a polyfiller. Yeah, like a slug sluggy polyfiller. Ugh. Ugh, it's disgusting. Anyway, I'm trying really hard to think positively about the benefits that slugs have for science and human health. So hopefully next time I step on a slug, before I throw up in disgust, I will think about how a slug might one day save my life, and then I'll throw up. I'm Maggie Adaren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. So you guys have heard of John McEnroe, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. There's a movie coming out with his famous game with Borg. Oh, Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg. The the Ice Borg. They used to call him, well, he says they used to call him that. I don't think they did really. But yeah, so John McEnroe is a loudmouth American tennis player from the early 1980s who used to argue with pretty much every umpire's decision and he was famous for saying, you cannot be serious about umpire's decisions. Thanks for that it's all right. attempt. But anyway, so John McEnroe recently caused a bit of a controversy. He's always been quite good at that. He was talking about Serena Williams and what a tennis player she was. And he said that if she was playing men's tennis, she would be about 700 in the world. Get in out. The ranking. That's what? what he said. That's what he said. What? Why would he even? How does he even? He's just making that He's, he's just pulling it out of his uh, yeah. racket bag, let's say. <laughs> um, you know, it <laughs> keeps him famous, keeps his face on telly, keeps him getting bookings for speaking appearances or whatever. Oh, and yeah. I don't really know if... He was actually giving that as a genuine estimate of her ranking ability, but it was an interesting thing that it raised about why are there men's and women's competitions in sport? So in almost all sports, there are men's and women's versions or leagues of the same game or event, and I guess it kind of seems to be based on some sort of old-fashioned chivalry thing that the weaker sex can't compete, so we won't let them play uh, really against chivalrous? the men. Well, you know. <laughs> chival- sounds, sounds more like sexist. <laughs> yeah. Sh- chival- chivalry and sexism sort of are very closely. <laughs> it's same, basically treating people different based the on their diagram. based on their gender or based on their sex. But the idea that women and men are fundamentally different and can't possibly compete. So the first Olympic Games, for example, there was no women allowed in the first Olympic Games, the first modern Olympics, I should say, in 1896. And in fact... It was the London Olympics in 2012, which was the first year that all competing countries had women in their Olympic teams, and the first time women competed in every single sport in the program. So, hey, it only took just over a century to get there, (laughs) to let the women all filter through to all of the levels. 
So the division between men's and women's events has always been the basis of a bit of a problem. And the idea being that a man competing in a women's event could potentially beat the female competitors. That's the idea behind having these separate competitions. You can't put everyone in together because supposedly the men would always win. Now, you'd have to, if you have separate events and a man wanted to compete in a women's event, they'd have to lie and say, oh, no, I'm a woman and potentially wear a wig or whatever um, (laughs) ridiculous 80s comedy standby they would use to make that amusing. But they'd obviously have to lie. And potentially, I guess, there is some reason to assume that a very athletic man could beat a very athletic woman, potentially. Now, the way that the Olympics made sure that women were competing in women's events was they used to do clothes-free inspections of the women competitors. They didn't get the men to do this. They only got women to do this in the women's events. Now, the age of some participants, even at international levels of sporting competition, things like gymnastics where the participants might be 12 or 13 years old when they're competing internationally at the Olympics, made some people go, hey, we shouldn't really be doing this anymore. So they went, oh, okay, we'll stop doing these visual inspections of women oh, in the so women's creepy. events. It's terrible, it isn't is it? It's so creepy. So then they decided, well, what we can do is we'll do chromosome testing. So we'll make sure that the female participants have two X chromosomes and then that will ensure that everyone competing is biologically a woman. Now, obviously, that's also a problem because that's not necessarily a useful way to distinguish between men and women or male and female or however you want to describe it. There are a lot of variants on that. That's right. And the test was, it's a genetic test and it could be wrong and it could ruin someone's career potentially if it gave a false result or it gave an accurate result, which wasn't accurately depicting their physiology, which is quite conceivably possible. So most recently, it was decided that the reason a male could outcompete females in the same event is because they have higher levels of testosterone. Right. Okay. So testosterone is predominantly a male hormone, but women have and females have testosterone as well. Sure, just like males would have estrogen. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It, it's just It's the, all about the concentration. And the proportions, yeah, mm. the proportions between the two. So this is now proposed as the main test to be used in high-level sports and athletics competitions. Now, the evidence for this is wobblier than a bumped high jump bar. (laughs) The only actual experiment to test this hypothesis that women with high testosterone would do better than women with lower testosterone was published this year. What? Yes. Hang on, but is that after... The fact? Well, they haven't actually introduced it yet, but the... Um, there's not exactly the, a body of evidence. Yeah, no. So there's a, there's a court of arbitration for sports, and they said, we can't actually make a decision on this. We haven't got enough evidence. We are going to get the International Association of Athletics Federations to come up with a way of testing this. So do a big experiment, basically, to see, sure. if, to see if the hypothesis was accurate, if that is a reasonable assumption about women doing better in certain events because they have higher testosterone levels. So the IAAF took 2,100 athletes. They took 1,300 female and 800 male athletes and measured their performances on a variety of track and field events common in the Olympics and rated their performance as measured against their testosterone level being low, medium or high. And what they found was 
a difference in some events. An apparent advantage for people with high testosterone in the 400-meter hurdles, 400-meter sprint, 800-meter sprint, the hammer throw, <laughs> sure, okay. and the pole vault. Wow, right. So they found in five events that women with high testosterone that appeared, is a lot of events. appeared to do better than women with low testosterone. Oh, so five events. Unfortunately, they didn't do a proper statistical analysis. Oh, great. So they didn't do any T-tests or anything to figure out the probability. They just went, well, there's five events where women with high testosterone did better than women with low testosterone. So they didn't actually figure out if there was a statistical significance to that. They just went, well, that's the raw data, so we'll just go with that. <laughs> so, So there's actually a good chance that those results were chance. Just yeah. pure chance that these women just did better because... Well, there isn't any evidence to show either well, way. Well, you can't argue that statistically it, it's better, but, yeah. that, it, that it means anything. And in fact, the results could easily be chance and the whole experiment might not mean anything because there were 16 events where women with lower testosterone levels did better than women with higher testosterone levels. So the idea that in five events, women with high testosterone did better and 16 events, women with low testosterone did better doesn't make for a very rigorous study. So really, I think pretty much this kind of shows that the hypothesis is we might as well go back to the drawing board and think of something else if we're going to even bother with this testing. Or maybe we just say, do you want to be in this race? Off you go. I don't, Off I can't, you go. <laughs> I can't see, I can't see of any kind of scientific way of excluding people from an event they want to run in. So I don't, I don't know what else to do about it really. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.